Well, good morning, church. Glad you're here this morning. Hebrews, our study, is Consider Jesus. That's what the author of Hebrews, he's writing, if I'll back you up on this so you remember, he's writing to Hebrews, people that knew the Old Testament backwards and forwards. The New Testament had not been compiled at this time, so the scriptures they had were the Old Testament. And so he's writing to them and he's saying, hey, you've believed on Jesus, you've con- but you've stopped considering Jesus. Why? Why have you stopped considering Jesus? And then he kind of walks through and, and he says, has your attention drifted? Maybe you're having an attention drift where you've just allowed your, the world to get your attention and you've drifted away from considering Jesus in all the areas of your life. And now you're like considering everything else around you and what everyone, the news and Facebook and social media and your parents and, you know, friends and what you're considering all their information, but you're not considering the truth about what God says about the world, about you and about who he is, like Roxanne shared, that it takes practice to consider. And then we went on and we looked at the fact that after your attention drifts, then you've got to remember to come back and trust him. The author of Hebrews says we need to to learn to trust again. And trust is a muscle that has to be exercised. And then he says, as you're doing that, the enemy is going to try to harden your heart. He's going to try to get your heart to harden instead of soften towards God, to have, you know, anger at God. And then you're not going to find rest and you're going to be tired. And God wants to give you his rest. And then he went on to say, so that you can go on to maturity. That God doesn't want you to be a child. He doesn't want you to be a child in the sense of you never grow up. He desires for you to reach maturity. And like Roxanne shared in her testimony, there's a process of doing that. There's a process of becoming someone who is mature in your faith. And just like maturity takes time, we in our Christian culture today try to speed up the process of maturity way too fast. We love to take the person that's just accepted Jesus and put them on platforms and show them off and everything else. And then it always amazes me that most of those people, when we do that to them, which the Bible says not to do, actually, when we do that to them, it's amazing how they fall later and crash and burn. It's not wrong to share the testimony you have. It's not wrong to tell people about what God has done in your life. But when you don't have a foundation and you haven't built that yet and you haven't begun to mature then that can be a dangerous thing, the Bible says, to put someone in that kind of a spotlight. It's not helpful to them. It's like asking a two-year-old to do hard labor. (laughs) It doesn't work. They'll get hurt. And so the author then goes on, and today we're going to look at this, and that is to seize hope, to seize hope. 618 says, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to seize the hope set before us. I don't know about you, but in these last couple of probably 18 months, especially the last six months for me, just with the health issues and things that I've gone through, this idea of seizing hope, of finding something to hope in, right? Where do you place your hope? What do you grab onto? What do you seize when things are difficult? Where do you run? Do you run to I got to get my life in order. I got to control things. I got to do a different diet. I got to, you know, I got to run to my parents. I got to run to my wife, my husband. I've got to run to all these places. Or do you literally seize the person of Jesus for your hope? Now, God gives us all those other things for hope. He does. He gives us food for hope. (laughs) Wow, I can eat today and I'm nourished and praise the Lord. Like, he gives us relationships. But it's so easy 
to take on those things. And if we're not careful, we stop considering where our true hope comes from. And we begin to settle. And what the author of Hebrews is trying to get us to see, and this is probably one of the hardest passages in Hebrews, possibly one of the hardest passages in all of Scripture. Because it's this passage that makes people doubt Jesus and doubt their hope more than any other, even though the author is writing (laughs) to say, I want you to seize hope. Our wicked hearts twist this passage so that we allow the enemy to take our hope instead of seizing onto it. And that hope is Jesus. And so I want us to look at that. And so I want you to ask yourself that question this morning. What is it that you hope in? And can I tell you, the Bible is clear that hope is not a circumstance. It's a personal relationship. God wants us to hope in relationships, specifically with him and then with his family. He wants us to hope in him, and he's given us the Bible so that we can see that there were people before us that hoped in him, kept their hope, and that they are with him in heaven. And he's given us that promise so that we can have it. And it's a beautiful Beautiful picture. So let's dive in. Last week, this is where we kind of left off. It said, therefore, leaving the elementary message about the Messiah, an elementary message, we talked about this, is like addition, learning your numbers, learning one plus one equals two. The author of Hebrews is like, I don't want you to just do elementary. I want you to, to see the greater glory of God, the greater glory of math, the greater glory of the written word. I want you to see more Now, you can be saved knowing one plus one equals two. Jesus plus my surrender equals heaven. That's elementary. That's simple. You can can know that and, and you can have a relationship with God. But God says, I want to take you deeper. I want you to have hope so that when the world comes at you, you don't just have one plus one equals two. You have an experience of looking at the world, seeing things and figuring things out that really has produced in you something that, is like mature, like Roxanne talked about in her testimony, where she carried that in her pocket, kept pulling it out, and how the scripture matured her to find hope and forgiveness when she doubted it. And he says, let us go on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works, faith in God, teaching about ritual washings, laying on of hands, and the resurrection of dead, and eternal judgment. And we will do this if God permits. We will grow on to maturity and we will talk about these subjects as well if God permits. But the author is trying to get them to see all these other issues, all these other details, why while we can talk about them, the reality really comes down to who do you consider Jesus to be? Is he the person of ultimate hope that God sent into the world to finally and fully say, this is hope, accept it or not? And suffer the consequences. That's exactly what the author of Hebrews is writing here. He's like, you guys argue about all these things. You you wrestle with all these issues. And the the writer of Hebrews is saying, those are actually the elementary things. You think ritual washings and talking about all those details of the Bible, oh, that's spiritual maturity. Not necessarily. You just may know a lot. You may like to argue. What true spiritual maturity, he says in here is, is the idea of really getting to know Jesus, considering who he is, understanding how that affects your life and your world, and engaging it and counting the cost. Because remember, these Hebrews 
who had started out following Christ were now starting to abandon him because it was getting hard. The Jews around them were persecuting them. The Romans were encouraging persecution. The Romans were starting to persecute the Christians for being a religious sect that needed to be done away with. And it was just easier to go along with Judaism. It was easier just to go back and do the things your Jewish neighbors do so that you could fit in and not stand out. You know, just, well, I'll just do what you're doing because I don't want you to think I'm weird. I don't want you to think. And God's like, no, don't. And it's easy to have a conversation with Jewish people when you're Jewish, (laughs) right? It's easy to talk about everything they want to talk about and not bring up the conversation and go, yeah, ritual washings, uh uh-huh. You realize that's all about Jesus, right? You realize all this faith in God stuff, all this repentance stuff, it's all about Jesus. So you don't want to say that because once you get that out there, there's no return from that. There's no like taking that back. They now know where you stand, and you've drawn a wall, and if they don't walk through that wall, if they don't allow God to soften their heart, then you're going to have a war on your hands. Hebrews 6, 4 goes on to say this, for it is impossible to renew to repentance those who were once enlightened, who tasted the heavenly gift, became companions with the Holy Spirit, tasted God's good word and the powers of the coming age. And who have fallen away because to their own harm they are re-crucifying the Son of God and looking and holding him up to contempt. For ground that has drunk the rain has often fallen on it, and that produces vegetation useful to those it is cultivated for, receives a blessing from God. But if it produces thorns and thistles, it is worthless and about to be cursed and will be burned at the end. We'll see in a moment that the writer of Hebrews is trying to get us to to hope in God. But I don't know about you, but when I read this, it almost seems like the writer of Hebrews is getting, trying to get us to doubt God. He's trying to say, man, it's impossible. You see, the first thing when you run into a hard passage like this that you have to do is you have to ask two questions. You can write these down. You can keep these in your mind. But one is, is what does the passage not say? That's the first question. What does the passage not say? Because what we can do is take a passage like this and start to run with it and start to make it say things it doesn't say. The second thing is, what does this passage not mean in light of who God is? Like, like it's easy to say, well, I think it means this. I think it means this. No, no, hold on. What does it not mean? Because if you don't answer those two questions first and kind of think through that, then you're going to get to a wrong interpretation. And if you don't know the scriptures and what God says about his covenants, you're going to think that God is this guy that holds salvation on a string, like, you know, the carrot and the commercial with the dollar on it, you know, and he's pulling it away from the person trying to grab a dollar. And if you're someone that's struggling in your faith, if you're someone that struggles with sin, it's easy to look at this, which all of us struggle with sin, by the way. It's easy to look at this and think, God's done with me. He doesn't love me. He doesn't care about me. I, I can never be renewed again. And go to a very dark place that in a moment we're going to see, the author actually says is exactly where he does not want us to go. So you got to get that off the table first. God is not speaking to those of you who are listening. Jesus said over and over again when he taught, 
those who, who can hear should listen. He's talking to people that aren't listening. He's saying it's impossible to renew to repentance. Now, some scholars say the word repentance is not the word salvation. Could you have someone that's saved but not repentant? And before you answer that question, you might think about this. If you're driving in your car today and you're getting ready to have an accident, right, and you're cursing the person, you just got done cursing the guy next to you for cutting you off, which is why you looked away, and then you crash and die, you just died without repenting for a sin of hatred that you just had to the guy next to you. You go into hell? Didn't have time to repent? Or do you trust in God as your salvation? You see, it's easy for us to look at this and, and judge salvation and point our fingers or even point, allow the devil to point back at us so that we go to a place that God never intended for us to go to. And we have to be careful with that. And he says, those who were once enlightened. What does enlightened mean? It doesn't say those who were once saved. That word could have been used here. The author of Hebrews could have used the word salvation. He could have said, and those who were once saved. He doesn't use that word. He uses enlightened. In other words, the light shone on them. He then goes on to say, who have tasted the heavenly gift. There's a difference between tasting and eating a meal. You taste it. I don't know if I want this, right? Kids that, I want you to try this. They never just take a spoonful, well, rarely, take a spoonful and shove it in their mouth and like take a big bite. They normally take it on a spoon and they're like, right? And they, no, no. Like they taste the heavenly gift. He could have said they've consumed the the communion. They've consumed God, right? And and then they've left it. That's That's not the wording he uses here. He's very careful with the words he uses. And you need to recognize that. We need to recognize that. He goes on and he says, they've become companions with the Holy Spirit. I don't know about you, you're actually not a companion with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's actually in you. If you know Jesus Christ and you've accepted him as Lord and Savior, he now actually is in you, the Bible says. The Holy Spirit comes and dwells in us like the Holy of Holies in the Old Testament. And he's there to do his work of cleansing. And he's going to continue to cleanse you throughout your whole life. And when you sin, he's going to keep bringing you back to who he is and who Christ is and how you need to grow. And and sometimes we can fight that for a very long time, for years for some people, and then come back around. He says he's a companion of the Holy Spirit. That's someone who's kind of just like hanging around the Holy Spirit. Right? He could have said a friend, a a mutual. No, a in other words, they're around Holy Spirit things. He goes on and he says, tasted God's good word and the powers of the coming age. Again, he says tasted. They've seen the power of God. They've been coming to church. They've been, maybe in the Old Testament, they've seen how God has worked in the Old Testament. And it says, who have fallen away. Fallen away from what? Fallen away from repentance. Fallen away from enlightenment. Fallen away from tasting and and eating. They've, They've decided, I don't want this. And then it says, because to their own harm, They are re-crucifying the Son of God and holding Him up 
to contempt. In other words, they, keep, they can't just accept that Christ has died for them and he has paid the price. They keep having to like make a show of it. Like constantly I got to keep re-crucifying Christ. Do you know that every time you sin, God's crucifixion is back on you? So, so he's not talking, he can't be talking to someone who sins and says, oh, if you sin, boy, you, you re-crucified Christ. If you ask for forgiveness, you've re-crucified Christ and so you've fallen away and you're out of here. That is not what this means. It's what it can't mean when you read the rest of the Bible. It can't mean that. Because all the way through the rest of the scripture, the Bible says that anytime someone repents, heaven rejoices. You see, it's impossible for these people to repent because they've decided they don't want to accept the forgiveness and grace and free grace of Jesus. They've decided, I don't want that. Maybe they thought they had it, like I did. Like Roxanne would have said, I knew about God, but I didn't know him fully. I, did, I wasn't a part. That's who he's talking about. He would have been talking about teenage Matt, who wrote papers in high school about Jesus and compared Jesus to Beowulf. And I got, had a great paper on that, got an A on it, explained the gospel in that paper, and I did not know Jesus. And every time I went to church or went to God, it was always this idea that Jesus has to die for me again and again and again. I'm not good enough. I've got to measure up. I've got to try harder. Instead of just accepting, eating, right? The fullness of who Christ is and considering him. That's what this author is getting at. Now, there are some people who believe differently about this passage. You hear us teach often in our church that we have conviction-level beliefs, persuasion-level beliefs, and opinion-level beliefs. And I tell people all the time, die for your convictions. Teach your persuasions. Hold on to those. This is what I'm persuaded to believe from Scripture. And probably keep your opinions to yourself. Or at least discuss them with close friends. <laughs> don't, don't make that your Facebook post, right? I see that this falls in the category, not of conviction-level belief that no one could ever lose their salvation, but it's like right on that level between like persuasion and conviction. This is one of those for me that it's like, okay, if God doesn't keep his covenants and if he's a liar, then what else is he lying about? What else can I not trust him in? Does that make sense? So while this isn't a conviction-level belief, if someone might see this scripture a little differently, I wouldn't say you can't be a believer if you don't see it my way. But I would challenge them because I'm teaching my persuasion and push back against them, you ready for this, with the rest of the passage that we're going to see. I'm just going to use the text that's here to push back against them and say, then why did he say this? Why does he say this? Why does he say this? Which is what I want to walk you into. Because I guarantee all of you here at some point have doubted whether God still loves you. Whether he could forgive you for that sin. Whether you're worth it. And I'm telling you, you are. Not because I said it, not because I think you are, but because God himself says that you are and he sent his son to prove it. And when you finally get that, like Roxanne talked about, when you finally come to that place where you're carrying a card around in your pocket to say, I am not going to be dragged back down by the enemy. I am going to trust and consider Jesus. It changes you. And it's beautiful what it can do in your heart, and in your lives. And God does not want you to feel condemned. There's a couple other passages. Jesus told a couple of parables. 
to kind of give some illustration to this passage. And I want to go to those parables. Before we do that, let me read this. He says, he talks about the ground that's drunk the rain produces what? Fruit, right? So, so if you truly are a believer, there's going to be fruit that starts being produced in your life. Now, some people are big trees and grow a lot of fruit. Some people are like that flower that buds once every like 20 years, right? You know those flowers that like, I remember the one on Dennis the Menace that just popped in my head. I don't know if you've seen Dennis the Menace, but you know, the, what, Mr. Mr. Wilson? Is that his? Yeah, Mr. Wilson grows this flower. He's been waiting his whole lifetime for this flower to bloom. And of course, Dennis wrecks it all, right? It's a disaster. Like, like yes, Dennis the Menace could go to, go to heaven. Like that's, like, and so it's, some people don't produce as much fruit. The question is, are you allowing God to produce that fruit? And he says, and some falls on ground and it just becomes obvious that the ground wasn't ready to accept it. They didn't accept the, the fertilization and the rain and nothing grew on it. See, that's maturity. That's us seizing the hope that God has and it shows if we're growing in maturity. Look at what Jesus says in these parables. We're just gonna read through them. Matthew 13, three, it says, then he told them many things in parables. A parable is a story with a spiritual point. Consider the sower. A sower is someone who went out to sow seed. It's like some passages your Bible might say the farmer who went out to to plant seed. As he was sowing, some seed fell along the path. In other words, he is broadly sowing seed. Some people would find that irresponsible, right? I got to find the right place to plant the right seed. God's like, no, I'm sowing all the time. I want my message to go out everywhere. Broadly sowing seed. And you're like, but you're wasting it. Because he goes on and he says, and the birds came and ate those seeds up. Others fell on rocky ground where there wasn't much soil and they sprang up quickly since the soil wasn't deep. But when the sun came up, they were scorched and since they had no root, they withered. Others fell among thorns. And the thorns came up and choked them. Still others fell on the good ground and produced a crop, some 100, some 60, some 30, what was sown. In other words, different amounts. Anyone who has ears should listen. Anyone who has, now if you're hearing this parable and you're actually a farmer, you get this, but you're still asking like, why are you sowing seed everywhere? You should like dig a row, plant a seed, cover it up, get the ground ready, all that kind of stuff. And God is saying, that's just not how it works with me. I'm trying to let everybody, I'm going to spread broadly. I want my message to everyone. So what does this parable mean? Glad you asked. So did the disciples, and this is how Jesus explained it. You then listen to the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word about the kingdom, that's the coming kingdom of Jesus. That's the kingdom that's not here yet. It's what we hope for, that there is heaven on the other side of this life. There is a kingdom God is building that we're hoping on because this kingdom really stinks, right? And he says, when anyone hears the word about the kingdom and doesn't understand it, so these are people that don't understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is the one sown along the path. And the one sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. In other words, they're like, oh, I love this idea of Jesus. I did that three times in high school. Three times. I was like, oh, I, yeah, I, I really want a better life. I want this, I want that. Oh, yeah. I never came to know Jesus that I know of. And he says, so they, they fall and, and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself, but is short-lived. 
When pressure or persecution comes because of the word, the, because of the word immediately he stumbles. And I love that he says, because of the word. In other words, it's obvious that they're, they're not following God. Maybe they're not even a believer possibly. Why? Because when they get the word, they fight it. They don't embrace it. They're constantly fighting God's word, not saying, I want to believe this. I want to believe you, God. This reveals who you are to me. Show me more. They're constantly like, nope, nope, nope. And he goes on and he says, uh, and he immediately stumbles. He goes on and says, now the one who's sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word. But the worries of this age and the seduction of wealth choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. In other words, again, they've heard it but they've allowed everything to come around them and it's choked out the true message of the gospel that could change their heart. And then it goes on to say, of this age and seduction of wealth choke out, it becomes unfruitful. But the one sown on the good ground, this is the one who hears and understands the word, who does bear fruit and yields some 100, some 60, some 30 times what was sown. Again, there might be some different views on this parable but it's still this same tension that we have. Jesus goes on to tell another parable right after this in Matthew 13. He says, I, he presented another parable to them. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed seed in his field. Got another guy planting seeds. This time he's planting it in a field. This time the farmer is actually being incredibly responsible. He's not just throwing it on rocky ground and thorns. He's planting it like in rows, being careful how it's planted. So the first time, it's like, oh, yeah, that's just an irresponsible seed planter. This time, it's a responsible person planting. And it goes on, it says, But while people were sleeping, his enemy came, sowed weeds among the wheat, and left. When the plants sprouted and produced grain, and the weeds also appeared, the landowner's slaves came to him and said, Master, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Then where did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he told them. So do you want us to go and gather them up? The slaves asked him. See, this is the problem of evil in our world. Where does evil come from? If God's so good, if God is so in control, if he's so sovereign and he plants and he waters and he, he takes care of things, then why are there weeds? Why, are, why is there sin? Why is there a problem? Oh, because there's an enemy. That's how the Bible answers it. There's an enemy that's constantly working against what God is trying to do in your life. He's trying to get you to believe any lie. He's trying to get you to see him, see God in any twisted way he can so that you actually don't trust fully in the kingdom, but trust in something else. That, that's, that's what the, this, this, this parable Jesus is laying out. And he's looking, he's saying, look, didn't you sow good seed? Yeah. But it's not just about the seed of the gospel, it's about the soil. It's about the heart of the person and their response to receive it. Does that make sense? It's a both and. I know some Calvinists would disagree with me on that. That's fine, we can have that debate. Hard to argue though when you share the gospel that you say, do you want to receive Jesus? Most Calvinists don't look at someone and say, are you elect? I would like to celebrate with you your electedness that you, God just miraculously made you know him. Because that's not the way the gospel is shared in any of the New Testament or Old Testament. And so here Jesus is laying this out. He goes on to say, that, oh, and by the way, check this out. The vineyard workers can actually tell the difference between wheat and tares or weeds. You see that in the passage? See, we think that we can't, we can't judge 
We can't look at anything. No, these vineyard workers, that's us, by the way, when we're going out into the fields and we see this happen, we're supposed to come to God and ask, what's going on? We see these people that are sinful. We see this mess. It's all, it's connected. Like, should we just rip it all out? And Jesus is like, no, because while you can kind of recognize it, you don't know what I'm doing, and I can change a weed to a wheat. Because I'm a miracle worker. So no, don't go rip it all out. It's not our job to go, you're out, you're in, you're out, you're in. But it is our job to say, that looks like weeds and I'm concerned for you. What's going on in your life? Because that looks like a weed. And we need to go to God and ask why there's a weed looking thing in your life. Because I love you enough to do that. And we also go to people and go, man, great wheat. Look at the fruit God has produced in your life. Isn't that cool? Look at what he's done. Man, celebrate that. That's discipleship, right? Then he goes on and he says this. No, he said. Should we go rip it all out? No, he said. When you gather up the weeds, you might also uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At harvest time, I'll tell the reapers. Gather the weeds first and tie them in bundles to burn them. But store the wheat in my barn. See, God says it's my decision. It doesn't mean we don't say wheat tear. It doesn't mean we don't address things. But it's not our job to say to someone, you're not saved, you are saved, you're not saved. That's not our job. Our job is to keep pointing people to consider Jesus. That's important to that Hebrews passage because I've seen that Hebrews passage used people against their own heart. Well, I'm just one of those Hebrews 6 people. And I've seen people want to use that against other people. Versus saying, I don't know, I just know that there's some crazy stuff in Scripture. I don't want you to be separated from God. Jesus goes on to tell again. He explains the parable. He replied, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world and the good seed. These are the sons of the kingdom. It's us. The weeds are the sons of the evil one and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is at the end of the age and the harvesters are angels. The angels are asking, is it time yet? Is it time yet? Hold on, not yet. Still changing people, still planting seeds. The angels are waiting in heaven for the full glory of God. They are waiting. Then it goes on and it says, Therefore, just as the weeds are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of this age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will gather from his kingdom everything that causes sin and those guilty of lawlessness. They will throw them into the burning furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in their Father's kingdom. Anyone who has ears should listen. Jesus is trying to get them to see, not, hey, you better be careful, you might be a weed. He's trying to get them to see that those who are made righteous can trust that you will shine forever. Oh, by the way, how are we made righteous? By our good works? By how many right things we do? No, we're made righteous because of what Jesus did and he declares us righteous. So then the righteous who are righteous because of what Jesus did for them will shine like the sun in their father's kingdom. See, that's the beauty of this passage. It always comes back to considering Jesus and saying, yeah, that's someone that considers Jesus. Look at Galatians. Galatians says, this is what fruit looks like. That I say, walk in the spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. There's a war in us between our flesh that Satan uses, that he has limited power over in our world. 
and the Spirit of God. And it says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faith, gentleness, and self-control. Against these things, such things, there is no law. In other words, you can do as much of this stuff as you want. (laughs) You can do as much love as you want, as much peace as you want, as much self-control as you want. As long as it's being done in the Spirit, not in the flesh. And then he says, now those who belong to Christ Jesus, look at this. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have already made the decision to get the weeds out of their life, to crucify the flesh with its passions and desires. So we live by the Spirit, but we must also follow the Spirit. So yes, you receive Jesus, the Spirit comes in. I've got this, but then it's like, but then there's this desire to want to keep following because you're seeing fruit produced in your life. You're seeing yourself See the word differently. See the world differently. See God differently. You're seeing love differently. You're seeing patient differently. You're seeing peace differently. All of a sudden, these worldly definitions of these words don't make sense anymore. And now you're seeing biblical definitions and you're going, these don't match the world. And if I do God's definitions of these words, I'm going to be in a fight with the world. But I don't know what else to do because I know what he's done for me. I know who he is and I'm surrendered to him. And I just want to see him do his work in me that I can't do without it. See, that's what they're getting to. In 1 Corinthians 5, Paul writes a hard letter to the Corinthian church. <clears throat> a very difficult letter. And in verse 5, or in chapter 5, verse 1, he is addressing a specific issue in the church. And he says this, it is widely reported that there is sexual immorality among you and the kind of sexual immorality that's not even tolerated among the Gentiles. In other words, unbelievers. A man is living with his father's wife and you are inflated with pride instead of filled with grief so that he who has committed this act might be removed from your congregation. Paul is writing to the Corinthian church and he's saying, now I thought we just said the wheat and the tares. You You don't tear them up. No, you don't get to kill them. That's what the harvest of that passage is, right? You don't get to say, tear, I rip them up, they have no root, I burn them myself. That's not our job. We got to let it grow up together. But we can say, that's a wheat, let's not let, or let's let the wheat give fruit and grow more wheat, and you can try to contain the weeds, correct? And so Paul is saying, in the church, in the body of Christ, he's looking and he's saying, It's been reported to me that you as a church won't deal with sin. You you won't deal with sin. And you won't do it in a way, look at what he says, you won't do it in a way that's filled with grief so that the person might repent. You do it with pride. You have so much pride when you should have grief over the brokenness and the sinfulness and what happens in, in your heart, in the world around you. We should have grief. And there are so many people running around in pride in their relationship or their supposed relationship with Jesus, proud of all the sin they commit, even justifying that sin. And Paul's like, it can't be this way, guys. He goes on and he says, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus with my spirit and with the power of our Lord Jesus, turn that one over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. It doesn't say the destruction of his soul. It says the destruction of his flesh. You have to let him know that you've got a huge issue. You either stop this or you can't continue to say you're good with us. This has to stop. 
or at least admit you're struggling with it, first step, quit living with her. And then let's walk through this together. Let's find out what's going on in your heart. Let's pray. Let's grieve. Let's walk through this as long as it takes. Then he goes on and he says, turn that one over so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Are we more concerned about the outward appearance and the flesh? And do they give? Are they givers? Are they, or are we truly concerned about people's hearts, their spirits inside of them. The writer of Hebrews is seriously concerned about their heart, which is why he's writing this. And then Paul goes on to say, your boasting is not good. I wrote to you in a letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. I did not mean the immoral people of this world or the greedy swindlers or idolaters. Otherwise, you'd have to leave the world. Again, wheat and the tares being pulled out. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who claims to be a believer who is sexually immoral or greedy or an idolater or verbally abusive or a drunkard or a swindler. Do not even eat with such a person. For what business is it of mine to judge outsiders? Don't you judge those who are inside? But God judges outsiders. Put away the evil person from among yourselves. So God even says there's a different way to look in the church and outside the church. He looks and, and, and with Paul's words, Paul says, look, I am, and, and what he's talking about here, just so we're clear, because this goes back to Hebrews 6, what he's talking about is if you went to someone and said, hey, you're being sexually immoral, let's stop this, let's get help. If they look at you and say, oh man, yeah, I'm broken over that, I grieve over that, I, I want help. You've won your brother, Matthew 18 says. Then you start to walk with them the rest of your life. We all struggle with sin. Some of us forever. In the Bible, all our heroes, almost all of them, struggled with the same sins over and over again. You realize that, right? Abraham kept lying. (laughs) David kept committing sexual sin and being prideful and trying to build his own kingdom. Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines. I think we know what his problem was. And I think they're all in heaven. Because God says they are. And so he's looking and he's saying, look, you've got to confront this. And when David was confronted with this sin, he repented. He, he said, I'm sorry. I, I want to be better. I want, I want your salvation. He wrote psalms that we read that just scream of him crying out to God. Like, don't. I just want you, God. And we read those psalms today and it's like, yes. So what he's talking about is people that when you confront their greediness, you confront their sexual immorality, you confront their idolatry, you you confront their abusiveness, you confront these things that they look at you and go, don't judge me. I got Jesus. I'm forgiven. I can do whatever I want. God loves me. Those people you are to grieve over and continue to push back against that. And the Bible says, because you're trying to save their soul, not Well, how dare you stand against what I told you? Because if you go there, now who's got sin in their heart? You. Because now you've got pride. And that is a hard line to walk that can only be done if you're hoping in Jesus and you're walking in the power of the Holy Spirit. And Paul says you better do it because people are watching. The world is watching. In Romans, Paul says this, therefore, since we have been declared righteous by faith, look at that, you're not righteous because you don't, You're not sexually immoral because you don't lie, because you're not greedy, you're not a swindler. That's not why you're righteous. You're righteous because of the faith God had by sending his son and you placing your faith in that. That's what makes you righteous. And then it says, 
We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The reason you have peace is not because you do everything right and you can say, see, I I live on a budget. See, I do all these things and that's why I have peace and that's what you should do so you can have peace. Does your budget consider Jesus? Because the rich young ruler came to Jesus with a budget. He was rich and he was a ruler because he was really smart with budgeting and really smart with investments and really good with money. And Jesus said, sell it all and come follow me. And he went away crying because he had so much stuff. So we got to be real careful, these definitions that we use and where we find our peace. Do we find our peace in our bank account and all those things? Or do we find our peace that I'm doing what God's asked me to do? I'm giving the way God's asked me to give. I'm obeying him and I'm trusting him. Man, it doesn't seem to be working out well, but it doesn't matter. I'm going to continue to do what he's called me to do. See, that's faith. Faith is what you don't see happening. It's easy to have faith when it all works out. It's easy to have faith when the government gives you a tax deduction for your tithe. It's a lot harder when they don't. He goes on and he says, We have obtained access to God through him by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice, look at this, in the hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also rejoice in our afflictions. I've been struggling with that this week. I mean, just fighting with God, like, God, let me be thankful that you're doing this in my life. And I don't know why you're doing it, but, and let me share Jesus with the doctors and the nurses and the people. Like, help me give you glory because this body, even if it makes it through this, something's going to get it someday. So let, let, help me. He looks and he says, because we know that affliction produces endurance and endurance produces proven character. And proven character produces hope. The reason most of us don't have hope is because we don't want to go through the process. We're looking for a God that's like a genie that we can rub the lamp, he pops out, we ask for it, he gives us. And we love going to those kind of pastors that'll tell us we can demand things from heaven on our behalf. And God says, live a simple life, follow me. Surrender to me. Don't be like who's being written about in Hebrews 6. Listen, like Jesus says in those parables. Listen to the parable. Take it to heart. Understand who I want you to be. I want you to be good soil. I want you to be a wheat. And I'll do it for you. I'll do it with you. He goes on and he says, This hope will not disappoint us. Because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Sometimes we can doubt and think that God's going to disappoint us. That when things don't work out the way we want in life or think they should work out, it's like God disappointed us. But then if we're smart, we should pause and ask ourselves, well, what did God say about how things would work out in this world? He told us they probably wouldn't work out well. It was going to be hard. That, that it, was going to, it was really going to take fully trusting him to get through this life. That that's what he said throughout the Bible, throughout Scripture. And all the people of the Old Testament had to fight wars and enemies and their own sin and their own mess in their families, and it was a disaster. Have you read through the Old Testament? Like, we're getting ready to come to the chapter that's like the heroes of the faith, and you read through that, and you're like, oh, yeah, those guys. And then you think about their life, and you're like, oh, yeah, those guys. 
They went through a lot. I don't know if I want that. But look at what this next verse says. Hebrews 5, 6 says this. For while you were still helpless, at the appointed moment, Christ died for the ungodly, and that's you and me. God wants us to know the hope that he has for us to walk with him. Now, we looked at that Hebrews passage. We've looked at these passages that here's where the author of Hebrews, we're going to finish this quickly. Here's where the author of Hebrews makes it clear what his point is in mentioning Hebrews 6, 1 and those passages. It's why Jesus tells these parables. It's why Paul writes to the Corinthian church and he writes to the Roman church. Here's what he says. Look at this. Even though... We are speaking this way, dear friends. In your case, we are confident of the better things connected with salvation. I have to write you a warning. I, I, can't, tell, I can't not tell you the truth that there, is a, there are saved people and there are lost people. There are people that will be with God and be brought into his storehouse and there are people that will burn for eternity. I can't not tell you the truth. Paul says, Jesus says, the writer of Hebrews, if it was Paul, says. They all say that. And he says, but I have better things in mind for you, dear friends. In other words, do not read what I just wrote as in God's out to get you. You are my friends. We are friends together because of what Jesus did. I'm, so, so yes, I've said a hard thing, but it's not because I'm trying to get you to doubt. It's not because I'm trying to manipulate you to get you to do some righteous act I want you to do. That is not why I'm doing this. I'm doing this so that you can hope for the better things of salvation. Not just your works. Not, oh, I want this sin gone. I want to deal with this sin. And I want to, I want to be more clean and wash myself. And I want to do this. And that. No, that's elementary. I want you to, to go after Jesus himself. Because if Jesus has you and you have that relationship and you have a relationship with his church that's one of engaging and surrendering your life to one another, that's going to show you what salvation really looks like. You want to see what hope and salvation looks like? It's Afghan Christians holding hands, praying and singing praises, knowing that the army's coming in to kill them. And refusing to be silent in the face of their persecutors. That's incredible hope. They knew their country was done. They knew the country was over. They knew freedom of religion was over because the Taliban were coming in and we're not hiding anymore. That is bold hope declared to a lost world. He goes on and he says, For God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you showed for his name when you served the saints and you continue to serve them. If you're here, it means you haven't given up. If you're still coming, it means you haven't like, I'm done. He's like, you're continuing to try to figure out how to serve, how to grow, great. Then he goes on and he said, now we want each of you to demonstrate the same diligence for the final revelation of your hope. So that you won't become lazy, but will be imitators of those who inherit the promises through faith and perseverance. God has promises that he wants to show you. The promises of the fruit of the Spirit. He wants to show you his love, his peace, his patience, his kindness, 
his goodness, his faithfulness, his gentleness, self-control. He wants to show you who he is and the power of the Holy Spirit in those simple acts. And he says, that's what I want to do. I want you to inherit. I want you to understand what it is and who I, the relationship you have. It isn't, I know LeBron James. It is, LeBron James is my friend. And I go to him when I'm trying to make decisions and ask him what he wants. That's considering Jesus. That's coming to the body of Christ. What do you guys think? Pray for me. I, I want to grow in these areas. Help me, I'm struggling. It's exactly what Paul, or the author of Hebrews, is writing about here. He goes on to say, For when God made a promise to Abraham, I love that he says this, since he had no one greater to swear by, God swore by himself. God made a promise to Abraham of an unconditional covenant. He looked at Abraham, he said, I'm going to make you great. I'm going to make your offspring as numerous as the stars in the heaven and the, and the sands on the seashore. And I'm going to do it. You in? Abraham's like, I'm not worthy. I know you're not. You in? Yeah. Okay, let's do it. Uh, it's been a couple decades and Sarah and I can't have babies. I'm not sure how you're planning to make your plan work, but it's looking like it's not going to happen. Do you, do you trust me, Abraham? I trust you, but the world around me tells me you've got to have babies to have offspring and make other babies. I'm just saying. I don't, I've never seen one appear. Poof, pop. Like that. There's a process, and the process ain't working, and Sarah's 90. Oh, and by the way, we tried to speed up the process and take God's covenant into our own hands. That's why we have Islam today. And why Islam is at war with Judaism and Christianity is because Abraham decided to make a, try to fulfill the covenant on his own and they had Ishmael through a handmaiden, a slave. What a mess. God says, I wanted to make sure you knew that I was making this covenant. It wasn't based on you. It was based on God. And then look what he says. I will indeed bless you. The writer of Hebrews wants to take you all the way back to the first covenant, that Abrahamic covenant. Well, I guess there was a Noahic covenant and an Adam covenant before that of be fruitful and multiply, right? That was just normal. Now he's specifically saying to Abraham, I'm going to bring the Messiah through your line. Like that's a beautiful picture of what he's saying to, to Abraham. And he said, I will indeed bless you. Do you believe that God will indeed bless you? That you have hope that someday in heaven he's going to bless you? He says, I will greatly multiply you. And so after waiting patiently, there's that word, <laughs> After waiting patiently, Abraham obtained the promise. Abraham didn't wait real patiently. You know that, right? He got impatient. That's Ishmael. But God still saw Abraham trying to wait patiently, even in the midst of his mess, even in the midst of his sin. And he says, For men swear by something greater than themselves, and for them a confirming oath ends every dispute. Because God wanted to show his unchangeable purpose even more clearly to the heirs of the promise, he guaranteed it with an oath so that through two unchangeable things in which is an it is impossible for God to lie. The writer of Hebrews is like, you can be confident in Jesus. You can be confident in the hope of heaven. You can be confident that it's not just some fire insurance policy you have, you can be confident that he wants a relationship with you and he's coming into your life and he's going to work with you. You can be confident in this God because he's done it before and that was his plan all along. He goes on, he says, we have fled for refuge just like Abraham fled, 
Remember, he had to leave and he fled and just trusted God as we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to seize the hope set before us, the hope of a relationship with God. Because here's the deal. It's not about the hope of heaven. Heaven's just a place. The reason heaven exists is because God actually wants us. He wants a relationship with us. That's why there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth someday, because he wants to actually have a relationship. See, the hope isn't about a place. It's not a thing we obtain or we get, or a place we get to. The hope is a person. And man, if we could get this in our world, and if the first Corinthian church that we, or the Corinthian church that we read about in First Corinthians would have gotten it, they wouldn't have looked for their father's wife to give them hope, to be that relationship. We keep looking for a relationship that will give us hope, and Jesus is like, I'm, I'm it, seize me. Now, does that mean he doesn't give us relationships? No, he does. But he wants us to hope in him. And then he says, look, we have this hope as an anchor for our lives, safe and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain. Remember, we talked about that. That's where the high priest would go offer sins for the people. Jesus went to the place we couldn't go to to make us confident that we're forgiven. On our behalf as a forerunner, because he, Jesus, has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And we looked at that last week. That he is that priest that was before a priesthood, before the Aaron priesthood was Melchizedek. And he goes on and he says, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, the one that came out to Abraham, that Abraham gave a tenth of all his spoils to, that Melchizedek that brought out bread and wine, which was the picture of communion in the Old Testament that then Jesus talked about later, that Melchizedek who met Abraham and blessed him, as he returned from defeating the kings, and Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. First, his name means king of righteousness. Jesus is the king who makes us right. We can't make ourselves right. We can't do enough right things. And then he says, also then he is the king of Salem, and Salem is the place of peace. So it means he is the one that wants to bring us the peace we keep trying to find and chase. And then he goes on and he says, he's without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. In other words, he's God. But resembling the son of God remains a priest forever. In other words, you can grab on and seize the hope of Jesus. You can seek, you can can trust this high priest because he says that he will forever love you. He will forever be the hope that the world And eternity sets their eyes on. He says you can trust him forever for that hope. Are there warnings in scripture? Absolutely. Are we supposed to have discipleship and confronting sin in one another's life out of grief because we love each other? Because we want to see people's souls be changed and we want it to become more like Christ? Absolutely. And we do that on the basis that Jesus is who he says he is. He's not trying to get us to doubt who he is. He's not trying to get us to to question. He's trying to get us to consider him and stop considering ourselves. Stop considering yourself. Consider me. Stop considering your sin. Consider me. 
Stop considering the future you're trying to make for yourself and consider the future I have for you. Consider Jesus. That's our hope. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for the opportunity to come this morning and worship you and read your word. Lord, I thank you for this letter to the Hebrews. I thank you that it speaks clearly of what the author wanted us to do, which was to consider you. Lord, I pray this morning that if anyone here is is lacking hope, I know for me, Lord, I've struggled with that this week, just wanting to hope in the things of this world and in health and all the other things. And Lord, I pray that we would consider you, that we would come back to placing our hope in the reality of this world and what you tell us about it and the reality of you and what you tell us about yourself. And that we would see ourselves rightly, that you want us to be wheat that produces fruit. And we don't have to judge how much fruit we produce. You do it and we can be content with the fruit that you produce in our lives. I pray for those that are struggling this morning. Maybe those even watching online that may not know you. I pray that they would finally see that there is a hope that they can seize that will be forever for them. And it's through a relationship, Jesus, of what you did on the cross. You paid the price we owed. You made the sacrifice we couldn't make so that we could be confident that we would not fall away because we have better things in store and you have better things in store for those who know you. And I pray that they would ask you to come into their life. They would receive you. They would seize the hope they've always been looking for. And then I pray that they would go to a church. They'd go to some believers so that those believers could help them grow in that hope. And for those of us here, I pray that we would be like Roxanne. I pray that you would use the word of God and you would use the body of Christ and you would use your church to grow us in our true hope. We pray in your name. Amen.